Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Once again, to the book of Hebrews, and we're going to be in chapter 5, and Lord willing, we will finish up chapter 5 today as we consider with one another verses 11 through 14 in a message that I'm entitling, Spiritual Immaturity Rebuked. Spiritual immaturity rebuked. To help set the flow of things and to be part of my introduction, I'm going to back up to verse 1 of chapter 5 and read it all the way through because the injunction, or that is the intersection of verses 11 through 14 are rather peculiar where they occur. So let's back up to verse number 1 in chapter 5. And read from there, and we'll come all the way through to the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord, Hebrews chapter 5. For every high priest is taken from among men, is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, but he may offer that, rather, he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way? For that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof, he ought, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins. And no man takes this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, referring to Christ, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience, by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Called of God, a high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have many things to say, and hard to be uttered. Seeing ye are dull of hearing, for when for the time ye ought to be teachers... Ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become, or some translations rightly have it, and have become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For every one that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of His Word this morning. You may be very familiar with these words in the Gospel of Matthew coming from chapter 6 verse 18 where after Jesus asked the disciples 
who do you say I am? And Peter had the the very first biblical confession in the Bible. Thou art the Son of the living God. Jesus said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You hear in that promise, carrying over from what we just learned in Matthew 28, that Jesus, first of all, in an offensive equipping the church, will make sure that his church will be built. And then there's also a reality in those words, those prophetical words of Jesus Christ, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In that, it is meaning that there's going to be an attempt by the gates of hell, what? To overcome it. And so there's going to be things coming against the church, his church. Uh, properly understood, sometimes that prophecy by Jesus Christ can be controversial. It's not talking about Peter. It's talking about the gospel. It's talking about the church of Jesus Christ. He will build his church upon his truths that he has commanded in Matthew 28, 28, that we're to go out and teach all nations, as we just read a moment ago in our New Testament reading. But also we see, and it became patently obvious to anyone who would pick up a Bible, don't know nothing about Christianity, they pick up their Bible and they start reading in the New Testament, it would become patently obvious there was being faced by the church all sorts of attacks. All sorts of attacks. Within the first couple decades, there was attacks. We see it written in the book of Galatians. Paul's trying to help them with attacks and understandings of what the gospel is. We find ourselves here in this epistle. If you believe it's inspired, it was it was inspired by Paul to be written, or inspired by another uh, early person that was connected to the apostles. It, it, it's neither here nor there. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit to do what? Help this early church face something that was causing them to doubt and go back to another system of how to be made right with God. That becomes patently obvious, doesn't it, in chapter 6, verse 1, of why he's writing this, because he says, Therefore, leaving the principles doctrines of Christ, let us go unto perfection or maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. We think of the um, epistles of the, the Corinthian church, who had a very wrong understanding of holiness and how to live for God. Right? So, Within the first decade, within the first 10 years, beloved, the gates of hell were trying to prevail against the church. What was, I want to ask you a question coming as part of my introduction into Hebrews 5, 11 through 14 this morning. What was the approach? What was the tool? What was the method of the apostles and the early preachers to help the church fight back the attacks so that the church continued to be built. It was to root and to ground them as mature Christians in the center of the object of their faith, which they were confessed until the end, the Lord Jesus Christ, His person and His work. And His work. Now what's interesting to us this morning as we come to here to chapter 5 is that as this Pastor, I believe he was a, a pastor. He's he's not he 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 has he's writing this letter to this early church. He has a pastoral heart. He's been beginning with chapter one, coming up to chapter five, verse ten, building up a case of the person 
and the work of Jesus Christ, right? And he gets to verse 11 and he's right in midstream of unpacking the high priesthood of Jesus Christ and he stops and gives what in the book of Hebrews is one of several warning passages. And this one is a warning, obviously, of being immature. And then we come to the infamous passage in Hebrews chapter 6, which is connected with where we're at today. Look at chapter 6, verse 4. It's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted heavenly gifts and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and to put to an open shame. He stops this as if it were sermon about how Jesus is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek and gives them a warning. Why does he do that? Beloved, why he's doing that is because he understood that as they're moving forward as the church and whatever it was they were wrestling with, whatever it was the Galatian church is wrestling with, whatever it was the Corinthian church is wrestling with, he understood that the immature are the ones who fall away. The immature, those who already were manifesting themselves amongst the early church to be apostates, who had the appearance that they were of the church, but they never really were of the church, they are the ones that were going to apostatize, fall away, be instruments of the gates of hell to bring in the heirs into the church. And he's warning these Christians here today, listen, you are a bunch of babies. (laughs) Now, you guys know the rules on the playground, right? How do you get someone's attention, especially for the guys in here? Uh, is, there any, is there any young men in here you enjoyed being on the playground or with other kids being called a baby? No, that's the thing that would wake, wake you up. And you'd say, hey, I'm no baby, right? But he, he's doing that not to unduly criticize or insult them. He's doing that to get their attention over something that's very serious, of what he's having to do, go back to the very rudimentary things of the person and the work of Christ that in chapter 3 they had already declared that they profess and that they owned as their own gospel. Why am I having to do this again? As he says in the text, by this time you ought to be teachers of these things, not to be told again these things. This is a very systemic problem in the modern church today. What I mean is, is that what we need in the church of Christ today is not more books that if you go to, I'm not going to say the name, but if you were to go to the number one Christian book-selling distributor, in the West, especially in the United States' website, and you see, I'm going to read them for you here. These are the books that are placed before the visible church here in the West to buy and to consume and to help right now. The church doesn't need this, what I'm about to tell you, because it's part of the problem. And this is where we've been at for a long time as the church in the West. So there is so much relevancy Today's message about warning against spiritual immaturity 
Because it's application in your life and the organic outworking of the problems that it will cause in the church and potentially even to your own spiritual destruction is very, very real. This isn't a theory in the book of Hebrews that it's presenting. And certainly, I'm not going to take the teeth out of the warnings that's in chapter 6 of what he is saying. He's saying, you had better wake up because the way that you're acting, there's a very real chance that you're either A, going to reinterpret who Jesus is, reinterpret the gospel, and all of that will condemn you as an apostate at the end. Now, beloved, you think, well, How could that have happened after everything he said in chapters 1 through 3 about the eternal divinity of Jesus? I I don't know how that could happen, beloved. Because very early on in the church, they were fighting uh, Arianism. Arianism children was a group of people that said, Nolan, we're Christians. But we believe that God created the Son. Well, You can blow that right out of the water by going back to Hebrews 1, that through the Son, who was the the very glory of the Father, who had created all things. How could something be created, created all things? You see the foolishness of this? Right? Well, how did that take root in the local church? Because that local church context that got succumbed and wrapped up in Arianism, they were drinking milk and they were content with drinking milk. And when someone would bring the word of meat, they would reject it. No, 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 we don't want it. We'll choke on that. We don't want to eat that. They were content to be slumbery, sleepy, dull hearers. And we'll get into what all this stuff means in a little bit. That's how it happened. And so, you know, you wonder how can these things, how could Socinianism, the rejection of the Trinity happen? Well, because people become dull of hearing. They're content. They have their cake. Listen to the diet of the church of where we've been at. And I just did this. I just went to the website. I do this sometimes to just see what's out there. What's, what's, what's Christians? What are we supposed to be told as the visible Christian church? This is Christianity. Listen to this. You're going to love it. Here's one book. Here's the title, of, or here's the, the description of the book. Pre-order the new release from best from New York Times best-selling author. There's the first red flag, because if it's a New York Times bestseller, you already should have as a Christian a red flag. Not that Christians can't be good writers, okay? But that's just a red flag. Not saying you've got to throw it in the trash, but just be careful. That's your first warning mark. Pre-order the new release from New York Times bestseller author such and such coming out on September 6, 2022. Discover what incredible and unbelievable prophecies will be revealed through his new eye-opening exploration of Scripture and current events. That's not what the church needs today. That's the milk that keeps us distracted. That leads us into errors and susceptible to all these crazy things that has plagued us in church history. There's another one. It's entitled, Be Joyful. 50 Days to Defeat the Things that Tried to Defeat You. And here's the description of the book. Do life circumstances get you down? Gain 
acquire the empowerment you need to rise above these hard times. In this 50-day guide, best-selling author Blank draws upon the Apostle Paul's teachings to equip you to overcome the emotions, the attitudes, and the experiences that rob you of your joy. Here's another one. I'm just going to give you the title of the book here. Now this gentleman here has probably in the last decade, 10 years, I would say a couple decades, he goes way back, he has probably sold more books than anyone to the church, Christians, in America at least. And here are the titles of his books, just a few. And I won't belabor the point, I'll move on. You were made for this moment. Next book. Let the journey begin. Subtitle. Finding God's best for your life. John 3.16's promise. He loves. He gives. We believe. We live. What's the center of all of those books? It's you. This is the Christian consumerism, the anthropocentric emotional evangelist, uh, uh, um, evangelicalism, beloved, that has got the church in the situation it's in today, which therefore is resulting in a lot of the things that you see today being done in the churches. How in the world is the church even having a serious conversation that you can be a sodomite on the inside even though you're not practicing on the outside and you're supposed to be that that sin of thought, that sin of desire is supposed to be accepted by the community of the church. And if the church doesn't accept it, then it doesn't understand the gentleness and the lowliness of Jesus Christ. Try to change the nature of our Lord Jesus. You see, what the church is doing today and those who are groomed and fed and content with milk is they face the hard truths of the Bibles and they do two things. They either change the nature of faith, meaning, well, the Christian faith, uh, yes, is that, but it also can encompass and tolerate and include all of this. Or... They have to say, and we'll do this when we get to Hebrews 6, they'll say that a true born-again child of God can lose their salvation. That's what they do. That's the two things. And the most prominent one, I would say, is the first one. What the church needs today is spiritually mature fathers. Spiritually mature fathers who are seeking to raise and lead their families in God's Word. That's the hard parts of God's words. And there is, uh, let's just admit, I mean, these books that we just read, beloved, uh, there is a lot of joy being a Christian. There's nothing wrong talking about that. Um, The the, the Gospel of John was written so that the hope of our joy would be full, you see. But it's not full to the extent of being void and empty of problems. That's nowhere in the Bible, right? Right? And you just read all those books. It's all supposed to make you understand that these are the remedies to get rid of problems because problems aren't part of the Christian life. And that's the exact problem of the Christian church today. We're a bunch of immature babies. 
And the first sign of something come along that's inconvenient, that offends my pride, that's not said the right way, what happens? It causes division, strife, so forth and so on. The church needs spiritually mature men in the church, needs spiritually mature women in the church, uh, mothers in the church who want to rear their children in the gospel truths. And uh, yes, you do get a spanking when you break the rules. Uh, there, 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 there are the commandments of the house, and you know, these are the way it needs, it needs godly, spiritually mature grandparents, it needs godly, mature singles in the church. It doesn't need the book. Of finding your best, finding God's best for your life. That, that's not what the church needs right now. That's not what it needs. Well, the author, inspired by God's Spirit, is in the middle of his argument here, his sermon, as if it were, in Hebrews, and he comes down as he's expounding. He's about, you, you saw what he was doing, right? Look at verse 6. He says, Thou art priest, he's reciting Psalms 110 here. He's reciting Psalms 110, declaring how that God the Father pronounces Jesus Christ was a legitimate appointed priest. He, he cites Psalms 110, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see, he's about to open up. He's about to go into this beautiful exposition of a figure in their history that these first century converted Jews would have understood Melchizedek and they understood all these things about the priesthood. We talked about this in chapter 5. I mean, he's right on the cusp about to just launch into this beautiful sermon. And then he comes down to verse number 10 and he does it again. He's called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Then he stops and he gives this warning. Wait a minute. I can't even go into this right now. Because you are not going to profit from it at all. No, we don't need to talk about, if you allow me the illustration, infralapsarianism or superlapsarianism. We don't need to get into, you know, uh, retro, uh, uh, reprobation and predestination right now. You know what? We, don't need, we just need to talk about the person and the work of Christ. That's what you need to be right. i got to take you guys back to the foot of Calvary and the cross and the plan of salvation, what was done at the cross. Because if you don't get that right, you're going to be tossed to and fro all over the place and you're not going to be able to stand when these things, these, the gates of hell come against the church. You're going to get Jesus wrong. You're going to get His person and work and what He's done for you on the cross wrong. You're going to make a shipwreck of the faith. And that's exactly what's happened. It's exactly what's happened. But, going back to Isaiah 66, going back to Matthew 28, there are and there is the church of Jesus Christ who has not made a shipwreck of the faith or still, no matter where they can be found, defending the person, the nature, and the work of Jesus Christ and declaring the unadulterated gospel of Christ. And he will do that until the very end. So he stops here, and the very first thing he wants them to see in verse 11, this is where we're going to go. That was all kind of introduction material. Here we go in verses 11 through 13. It really naturally is a roadmap, these verses, that give us their own headings. In verse 11, this is how we're going to approach it. He describes in verse 11 how they were being slothful stewards. Slothful stewards. Verse 12, he explains 
how that they have been squandering their time. And in verses 13 and 14, how all of this has resulted in them being unskillful. So now let's move into this warning of spiritual immaturity. Now that we understand a little bit of what he was doing before he got to this point, and then we'll try to, as we're working through it, connect a little bit and set up for us some of the most, as I said, serious warnings in chapter 6. So see how it's all kind of tied together. He says in verse 11, of whom we have many things to say. Now, some of your translations here will say this is referring to Christ. It will say of Christ or of Him who we have many things to say. I think that that's a good interpretation. Could be referring, like he, he could be here in verse 11 and get ready to unpack the person of Melchizedek, which he picks up in chapter 7 verse 1. So he could be referring to Melchizedek. He could be referring to Christ. I believe the subject beginning with verse 5 down to verse 10 is an emphasis on Christ, right, as the high priest. So I believe that the right interpretation here, verse 11, is Christ. But that's really irrelevant to what we're talking about today. Of whom, you could say Christ, of whom we have many things to say and they're hard to be uttered. Um, that's not meaning that this inspired author had a doctrine of the priesthood of Christ as it's connected with the order of Melchizedek. And it was so complicated, Brother Grizz, that he just couldn't you know, find the right words to explain. Let's, let's admit there are some theological truths in the Bible that are hard to simply explain. I'm definitely not one who's gifted with illustrations like C.H. Spurgeon. He, I read Spurgeon sometimes, and these, <laughs> these whimsical, just down-to-earth illustrations he would use just made the doctrine of election like so easy. And I'm like, well, you know, I wish I had that ability. I'm definitely like that. These things that are hard to be uttered here, as is related to Christ's high priesthood, as a priest of the new covenant in the order of Melchizedek, we know that the writer's not saying he's unable to explain it. Why? Because we've already seen in chapters 1 all the way through 5, especially as uh, Greek grammarians and theologians tell us, he had a masterful use of the Greek language, which is evident all throughout the letter of Hebrews. So it wasn't like he was admitting, listen, this is really hard for me. I don't know if I can really pull this off. No, what he was saying is, is there's a reason why it's hard to be uttered, and it's not me that has the inability, as inspired by the Spirit, and able to explain it to you. There is a reason, and the reason is by the word seen. Or in some of your modern translations, they say, because. Why are these things hard to utter? Why are these things going to appear to be difficult as related to Christ's high priestly office and the order of Melchizedek? As Christ is the appointed high priest of the new covenant, which we've already heard in the gospel, why are these things going to be hard? Oh, we see why. Because you have allowed yourself to become dull of hearing. You've allowed yourself to become dull of hearing. So it wasn't so much the difficulty of complexity but to their own spiritual dullness. Like I said, some translation will say since then, or seen, which in the Greek, it means owning to the fact. Owning to the fact. These things are going to be hard. Owning to the fact that you have become dull. 
Now, what's he mean by this dullness? What he's doing here, speaking to a first century Jewish audience who had been converted to Christianity, he's doing exactly, he's using words, he's using concepts, he's using categories, as we've been saying, as he's been doing all throughout this message, especially by bringing up their ancient past with those wandering around in the wilderness and drawing you know, lessons from that. Here, this dullness of hearing wasn't unique to him. This concept of warring the people who are identifying themselves as the people of God, who are prizing themselves as being set apart as the people of God, but are demonstrating possibly there's something much more than really the people of God. He's using a term that the good old prophets used to use. Now we'll see this. Go, go in your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 6 as we're trying to get the significance of what he's trying to say when he says You're, you have become uh, dull of hearing. Let's turn back here to Isaiah 6.10. They, when, when, when he said that, they would have really understood what he meant, brethren. Why are these things hard to explain? They would have understood. Oh, it's not because he can't explain them. It's because we become dull of hearing. This is what they would have understood him saying or implying to them. Isaiah here. You know, he's in his prophetical uh, message here. He's... Um, Woe to those who sin openly is kind of the context here in Isaiah 6. And we come down as he's, you know, land blasting those who were uh, under the reign of King Uzziah as we read in today in Isaiah 66, doing that which was right in their own eyes, worshiping God the way that they wanted to worship God, so forth and so on. He says in verse 10, back up to verse 9, uh, he said, go tell this people. This is just, you know, after the, the vision of Isaiah, this glorious vision. And uh, let's back up all the way to verse 5. Then said I, Isaiah did, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims. You know this story here, this, here, this account. Then flew one of the seraphims unto him, having a live hot coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth, and he said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquities are taken away, and thy sin is purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord, saying, Whom shall I send, and whom will go for us? Then said I, Isaiah speaking in the first person now, Here am I, send me. And he said, the one sitting upon the throne, the Lord, in all of his glory and majesty, told Isaiah, go and tell this people. Now the context here is a people who believe they're the covenant people of God. They're the ones keeping all the liturgical calendar. They're the ones who have abused the worship of God, doing worshiping him the way he's not told them to worship him. And they think that they're okay. They actually believe that they still got their ticket it, their ticket it, <laughs> their ticket into um, into covenant blessings and promises with God. So go tell these people what's he wanted them to hear. Hear ye indeed, but understand. Go tell the people that hear ye indeed, but understand not. And they see indeed, but they perceive not. 
Make the heart of this people fat. Preach the truth. Make their hearts swell with the conviction of the truth. Make their hearts fat and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be heard. And hear with their ears and understand with their heart. They were, in other words, dull of hearing. Now what's interesting is in the Gospel of Matthew, this same prophetical warning to the people that see but perceive not, you hear, you understand not, it's reiterated in the book of Matthew 13, 15. And this is the point that the writer of Hebrews is making. So go to Matthew 13, 15. Here in the the, the spirit of prophetical power, the Lord Jesus, uh, he's describing the wheat and the tares. And he says, this people's heart is waxed gross and their ears are dull of hearing and their eyes they have closed. Lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and should understand with their heart and should be converted and I should heal them. He's quoting Isaiah 6.10. And his original Jewish audience that heard him would have thought to themselves, yes, that's what was being told by Isaiah. And he is actually comparing us, Chris, the, the, the righteous Pharisees, the law-abiding, externally righteous Jews of being the same people in Isaiah's days who were worshiping God and, and, and according to abomination, that's, do you not see, beloved, why they hated Jesus so much? It's because He was bringing the very same message before these people who thought that they were the people of God, but inwardly they didn't worship God with their true, sincere, humble hearts. No, they had an external understanding. They tasted in some way the things of God, but it wasn't the truth. It wasn't the truth. They had, in other words, allowed themselves, for whatever reason, to become dull and sluggish. And that's really what that Greek word means. And so when the writer of Hebrews would have wrote this, they would have understood what he just is bringing to us as a very serious warning that he's comparing us to the generation under King Uzziah of Isaiah's time and then also in their own contemporary context in the nearer context of Jesus' time as those self-righteous ones who said that they were God's people, but they never were. Why? Because they had become spiritually lazy. You see, it was so astonishing that those who said they were looking and pointing and desiring the Messiah when the Messiah showed up in the the God-man Jesus Christ, that they didn't recognize Him. Why, Tyler, didn't they recognize Him? Because they were dull. They had eyes, but they couldn't see. They had ears they couldn't hear. They had a form of religion that made them feel comfortable. They had structured an understanding of God and about themselves and about the nature of sin, about the nature of grace, so forth and so on, that must have made them feel that they were doing okay. 
And they weren't okay. All of that system of understanding actually prevented them as spiritual babies of recognizing the Messiah fulfilling all of the prophecies when it's standing right in front of them. And then they thought that they were doing God's will when they crucified Him. So this is a pretty serious charge that the inspired writer of Hebrews is bringing forward. You guys that I'm writing to, you are being given the gospel of Christ, the precious begotten Son of God, your high priest, and you ought, you have everything. Verse 4, this high priest that's there to obtain mercy and find grace in the time of help and need, you, you have everything to press on in a continued perseverance of confessing this faith. How... How and why are you now dull of hearing and slothful stewards? You are these people. I have many things to utter to you about the one who's waiting to dispense grace to you in your time of need, but I can't do that because you're evidencing yourself that you're, you have become, seeing then, you are, you have become, you've allowed yourselves to retrogress back into being dull of hearing. Slothful stewards like Isaiah's generation and those who crucified Jesus. Now this was meant to and it ought to wake them up and really cause them to listen closely to what's about to come, especially in chapter 6. Because it can result in some serious spiritual consequences. It's not to be taken lightly. So when a pastor gets up and he wants to criticize the 10 top selling Christian books, it's the wrong attitude to walk away and say, he's just too serious. He has a lot of truth, but he just doesn't have enough of the Spirit. That guy needs to get out and have just a little bit more fun. That's not the right attitude. The right attitude is... You know, that guy may be on to something. I may not agree with everything he's saying, but, uh, but, but, but there could be some truth to, that I've become dull of hearing. And so let me at least hear out and see how he see what he says in the Word. And, 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 there could be, and, and, then, and then if need be, I need to reform my life. I need, to, I need to come and repent and I need to reevaluate certain doctrines and aspects of my understanding and let God's Word and God's Word and His Spirit be my God, guide into reforming my life. But the chances are why I don't you know, wax as eloquent as everyone. Most people, if you criticize the top-selling Christian books, are going to walk away... Come on, guys, you know this is true. They're going to say exactly what I just said a moment ago. That person's just a little bit too serious. They, they, they just don't understand that Jesus really wants you to have your best life now. Well, the writer of Hebrews here today, as inspired by the Spirit, is pointing out to them this is very serious. And he, he, he brings something to bear in the conversation now that really um, demonstrates for us a right understanding no matter where we're at in this teaching 
about what should be, what is the biblical model for someone who is progressing spiritually in maturity or someone who's retrogressing in immaturity. And that is, they had been identified in verse 12, not only as as slothful stewards in verse 11, but in verse 12, as squanderers of time. How do I see that? Look at verse 12. He says, he brings up time. For He says, although by this time, some of your modern, modern translations have it, and I think that's a good translation, the authorization is for when, for the time, it's a little you know archaic. But what he's saying there is, by this time, ye ought to be, you, hear, you see the word ought, there's the duty, there's the weight of responsibility, ye ought to be teachers, Ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles God, and are become such as have need of milk and not a strong meat. Squanders of time. This dullness, this spiritual immaturity that he's bringing before them, he makes it appear to them to be more reprehensible. Why? Because a lot of time has went by since they first were converted and given the gospel, and they professed in chapter 3 with their own lips that they believed it. If the theologians are correct, this letter was received by this church approximately 15 to 20 years after they had first received the gospel. Let's go with the short, let's go with the, the earlier day. Let's say they were only given 15 years. It's been 15 years And he cannot even have a conversation with them about the exalted high priestly doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ because they wouldn't benefit from it. He's got to go back and teach them just the basic fundamentals of the gospel, which he's comparing in this analogy with milk. Well, what have they been doing with all that time? What has these people been doing for the 15 years of their walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Have they not been seeking, desiring, in some way to exhaust every aspect in the old covenant books of the Scriptures of where the gems are hidden of Christ? And they would have when Paul arrived or when whoever the preacher would have arrived, been right there ready to get on board with a good sermon about how Jesus, the arrived, fulfilled Messiah, was a fulfillment of the typification of Melchizedek, and would have been amen and clapping hands the whole time. No, they couldn't do that. But they should have been doing that. Do you remember in Acts 13, a couple, I don't know, it's been about a month ago, when we saw how that, uh, the sermon from Paul when he stood up in the synagogue, how he started to preach the gospel and how he started with the Old Testament he would go through. Church, the, 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 this first century Jewish community that was converted to Christianity, they didn't have the New Testament Bible. But they had this Bible, the Old Testament, and it does nothing but preach Christ. If all we had is, let's, let's just imagine for a minute with our sanctified common sense. Let's just imagine that all we had 
as the Christian church was Isaiah 53 or just the Old Testament. I would have all the gospel I need. If we just had Isaiah 66 we read this morning, which sister you know comes into full bloom with the advancement of the New Testament church? I could preach Christ and Him crucified and I could preach the doctrine of Christ in the order of Melchizedek from the Old Testament. What were these Christians doing for 15 years? I'll tell you what they were doing. They were doing what a lot of churches do today. Most churches, let me say, you know, I don't, I, I, it's not like, um, I'm not, when I, when I begin to bring indictments against other churches, it is not done to get clicks on the internet. Okay? You get the point there? It's not done to excite you and make you feel better about yourselves that you're on the right side and you're on the right team. You understand that, right? I'm saying this because we should be grieved about this. We should be saddened about this reality. But what they were doing with their time is what much people are doing with their time. And it's every church service is preaching in some different aspect of John 3.16, how God so loved the world and sent His only begotten Son to save those who would trust in Him. Right? That, that's what they're doing. And so people get saved every Sunday or they get resaved every other Sunday or recommitted every other Sunday. And that's about as deep as the church is ever going to go. They're, they're not going to go much deeper in understanding the depths of the person and the work of Christ upon the cross and the scheme of salvation and how that it does and it only can glorify who? God. And it shuts the mouth of any prideful man. It humbles, it crushes the pride of man. They can't ever get to those doctrines and those precious truths of the gospel which enable and mature the man of God and the woman of God to discern about things and place things quickly through discernment in two categories. What that person's proposing, what that person's preaching, what that person in their book that's entitled, you know, have my best line, that falls into either a category of saving religion, maturing religion, or wasteful religion. Milky religion. When we focus on the true gospel, the true person of Christ, it gives us that maturity to examine things and to discern to ourselves, yes, that's true. I am to have a joyful life in Christ. But that's not my main aim and goal in this Christian life. And so, I'm not to be here to have my best life now. I'm to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's my main goal and my main purpose in life. Beloved, this is the state of affairs largely in a lot of the churches today. There's no going deeper. There's no going any further with the person and the work of Christ. They're squanderers of the time that God's given them and ye have need that one teach you again. Now he says that they ought to be teachers. What's the let me back up a little bit that the squanders. What's the biblical model 
of duration of time? What ought to be happening? Well, let's look at 2 Peter 3.18. This is what ought to be happening in the duration of time. Of setting um, in a church and having a Bible of your own and being given time to study the Bible, so forth and so on. Look at 2 Peter 3.18. And what we're looking at now, this is the more preferred biblical model of what should be happening in one's life in a duration of time, over 15 years. Older, hoary head Peter here, writing to the church. Listen to what he says. Verse 17, 2 Peter 3. Therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before, beware lest you also being led away with the air of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. Now, what he's focused on there is just an aspect of growing in grace, growing in an understanding of the gospel, growing in an understanding of the application of gospel and Christian living. And he says, be careful. You know these things, but I'm reminding you. Older man here writing. He wants them to get some things. Look what he says in verse 18. But, but the growing grace... And in the knowledge, and that word knowledge there in the Greek means what it does translated in English. It does mean an intellectual knowledge. Growing grace, that's the experiential part of your Christian faith. That's when you're praying in the morning, you're crying out to God. That's your devotional life. It is experiential, it is practical, it is real, and it's real precious, it's spiritual. But there's also, you see, a required Knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, doctrinal clarity, doctrinal truth that the apostles want us to be growing in. That's not only for the pastor. That's not only for certain people. No, all of us, with a duration of time, ought to be exploring. We ought to be motivated to know what thus saith the Word of God. I am not, beloved, a Reformed Baptist. I am not a Calvinist by tradition. <laughs> no. Through my pilgrim journey, as a pilgrim, I would hear something here. That's interesting. How, but that means this. I'd go search it out. I wasn't about, I wasn't about the business of squandering my time. Brother, I wanted to know the truth of what God's Word says about especially the issues of His glory and salvation. We do not have the benefit of accepting things by tradition. You shouldn't. You shouldn't. And so we should be those with with this biblical model that by grace we're growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going to go there, but you know Romans 12 too, where we're commanded by Paul uh, to have our minds renewed. So yes, absolutely, being a Christian, it floods our soul. It it utilizes the faculties of our emotions to what? Love Him all the more. But all of that is not detached from the faculty of our intellect, beloved. No. They both should be maturing. They both should be growing. They both, we should desire to be utilizing them for the glory of God so that we are mature. And that we could teach the things that he's talking about. Now, some may take this and run away and say, oh, see, everyone is supposed to be a teacher. Everyone's supposed to be a minister. So let's be, it sounds like sometimes I'm bad on the Quakers, you know, but there's, 
that's just the most immediate historical application I can make. Let's be like Quakers where everyone just gives up and gives a word from the Lord as a teacher. That's not what this text means. How do I know that? Well, I think I'm running out of time. We're not going to go there. But we, I could take you to 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 14. What does the apostle te- Paul teach us there, brother? He teaches us that while we are one body under the head of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're all given different gifts. We all are given different abilities to do what? Intelligibly, and that's what's being taught here, you ought to be able to teach clearly and intelligibly the rudimentary truths of the gospel. Now, in the context of the stream of the book of Hebrews, what he's telling these first century Jews, you, by now, after 15 years, ought to be able to teach from the Old Testament the first rudimentary elements of who Jesus is, the fulfillment of all the messianic prophecies and how he's come and ushered in the new covenant that Jeremiah talked about. You should be teachers of this after 15 years. Now, that lays a little bit of a responsibility in us. Because we could, could we not, beloved, be in this church today thinking, yeah, I'm glad that I'm a member of Christ Reformed Baptist Church. And we don't just fall into those errors of drinking milk all the time. But let me ask you this. If someone asked you to communicate the gospel, what version would it be? Would it be the version that my seven-year-old can communicate? To God be the glory that she can communicate it, right, out of her catechism book. Or would it be, how long have you been a Christian? Would it be the version of what the inspired writer Hebrews is telling this first century Jewish community that they ought to be by now teaching? It's just a question. An applicatory thought. How would you be able to communicate the gospel? Now, if all you can do is communicate it at the seven-year-old level, hey, praise be to God, at least you know it. And you're communicating it. But you can't escape the implicit uh, implication that's right here in the text. You ought to be teaching clearly more than just that. You ought to be. What have you been doing with the duration of your time? Are we spending our time more on how to... Now, brothers, after church, I know you're going to probably get with me and say, you know, Pastor, that rubbed me the wrong way, but I just got to say it, brothers... Are we spending more time about you know how to wax get the best wax coating on our fishing boat and how to fit, get the biggest you know fish uh, catch of the day? Are we are we doing that, or are we searching these truths out in the scriptures? Where is your heart? Where is your desire? Because it's a reflection of your maturity. Now, I did not say you can't have hobbies. I have my hobbies. But they're not to the detriment of growing and what Peter tells me to grow in, the grace and the knowledge of my Lord Jesus Christ. So when you're fishing, at least have some sort of earbuds in that's <laughs> teaching you something, okay? Ladies, you know, what are we going to apply? I'm not a lady, but I, you know, are you going to get lost in the different aspects that God's wired you to do to the neglect of these important things that help you Grow as a spiritual woman, a spiritual daughter of Christ. You ought to be after 15 years teaching these things. But the writer says in verse 12, he's having to teach them the very first principles of the oracles of God, which are the gospels, which he's been doing since chapter 1 up until this point. And to become such as have need of milk and not of strong 
mean? This is a shameful position that they're in at this point. Their diet is such that if he tried to teach them any more than what he has already said about the Lord Jesus Christ, they wouldn't benefit from it at all because they have not in their own time been doing what they're supposed to be doing. You know, if someone has an idea that their Christian faith and growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ can all be done by me on a Sunday morning, um, they're going to come here and we're going to get in certain things in the text and they're not going to benefit it from it all. Why? Because they haven't been utilizing their own time preparing to do what we all come here together to do on the Lord's Day. Does that make sense? I remember uh, Pastor Martin used to always say, you know, to the parents, he'd be, I don't, he'd be just doing a message about something, you know, and he would say to them, you know, if you're not teaching your children at home, you can't expect to bring them here on Sunday and have the Sunday school teacher do what, you know what I mean, you're supposed to be doing at home and everything turn out okay. Kind of the same principle, right? He couldn't even begin to really give them the meat, the true meat that they should have been chewing on and benefiting from after 15 years of walking with the Lord because they had been squanderers of their time. And that results... And them in verses 13 and 14, I think the, the theme here, the heading would be, they were therefore unskillful. They were unskillful and they were immature. Which could be, we're not saying it's a pronouncement. This isn't a dogmatic statement. But it could be a sign that they are immature because they've never truly, truly tasted the power of God at the cross of Christ. That's why they squander their time. And we'll unpack that more in chapter 6. But, but this has all result, resulted in them being unskillful. Everyone that uses milk, what's he mean by uses milk? The word use. Lives, lives upon. Uh, they depend upon milk. That satisfies them. That's all they crave. That's all they want. That's the, as far as their hunger will go. Everyone that is in that condition, that state, has allowed themselves to settle down dully, slothfully, sleepily, he's saying to them, is unskillful in the word of righteousness. And then there's the charge. You see the semicolons? Most translations rightfully have that. It's the charge. He is a baby. You're a baby. You're not going to be able to use the word of righteousness. Well, what's the word of righteousness? I believe that there are some commentators that wrongly interpret this, meaning you're not going to be you're going to be unskillful in the process of sanctification. But but that, but that's not right. And what makes this aspect a little bit difficult is one: this is the only place in the New Testament where this phrase is used. But we have elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, in the New Testament epistles where we, we see the, the, the translation, the word of truth, the word of Christ. Here we have the word of righteousness. Think with me for a moment as we're seeking to just rightly handle the interpretation of what I mean here. What's the nearest context that this finds itself in? It finds itself in the, the exalted, exploded view of Christ in the gospel, doesn't it? That's what chapters 1 through 5 are, are talking about. 
the eternal divine Christ, the, 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 the last certain word of all the prophets, Christ. Now he's in chapter 5 in this stream of his argument about how he is the high priest. I believe that it is more reasonable and right to rightly translate the word of righteousness as referring to, as John Owen says, the word of Christ, the gospel, the whole thematic uh, uh, stream of thought about what he's been saying, uh, him being sent by the Father, the propitiation for sins, chapter 2, verses 10 through 17. You see, it's the whole theme. The whole theme of Christ, His gospel, how we're saved, how we're made righteous, etc., etc. That nearer context, along with what he goes into later on, which is an answer to, it's a rebuttal against ever thinking going back to the Old Covenant. And what was instrumental part? What was an instrumental part to the Old Covenant? I'm saved by how perfect I keep the law. So what comes after this statement in the, le- the rest of this letter? What's already preceded it? Beloved, I'm convinced that what he's saying here, that people that are content with the milk, therefore become unskillful. They mishandle the word of the gospel. And that, my friends, is very true. That's where, because of those who are content with the milk and are afraid of the strong meat, don't want to accept the truth of what the strong meat is saying, will be unskillful, mismanage, and downright shipwreck the word of righteousness that is the gospel of Christ. Why is that so serious? Listen, friends. <laughs> this come up before church. This doesn't come up every conversation before our church services, but it did today. The word of righteousness, how we are made righteous with God. There is such a system of thought that crept into the church. It was not the gospel of Paul called Arminianism. And that poor person actually, when they are going to be on the day of judgment, standing before the thrice holy God. And actually, right now, they believe that the way that they have become a Christian, the way that they have become righteous in God's eyes, is that God made a door available to them and that they reached out their hand and made a decision to turn the knob, open it, and accept the gift that was there. As to where what we call Calvinism is the view that I was so dead in my sins, so blinded by my own pride, I couldn't even figure out where the door was. I was blind as Isaiah says, groping around in the darkness, not knowing how to find my way around. But God be the glory. He took my hand as the blind man and He placed it on the knob. And then he turned the knob and then he gave me the strength to open the door and then he gave me the strength to walk in through the door and receive his son. Now on that great day when we're there before him who is giving God glory? 
Who's the one who's given Him all the glory? Who's the one who has rightly, skillfully managed the word of righteousness? The one who understands it was all of Him. All of Him. The mismanagement of the word of righteousness, this is why this matters. This is why this is serious. Is the one who thinks that they had a part in saving themselves and they still have a part in keeping themselves. That's the unskillful person with the word of righteousness. And it caused a shipwreck of many people's faith. So these things are so true. They're so practically applicable. Because you were content with the milk, whenever someone would come along with the word and try to open it up, you rejected it, saying, Oh, that's just too that's just too difficult. The gospel's more easier than that. You're making too much of a dude about that, blah, 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 blah. You see. Well, there's serious consequences to this. Why are you so content with the milk? Why are you afraid of the truth? You know what? I welcome any Arminian. I welcome anyone who disagrees with me to come and let's, let's rightly divide the Word of God. I'm not going to be debative and argumentative. Of course, I'm going to get a little heated when you touch on you know, certain things, you know, the, the, the Trinity and things like that. But you get the point, friends, what I'm trying to say. Why would you be afraid of meat when you know that's the most nutritious thing you you need? Well, I guess we ought to consider an application of what if you're in a type of relationship like that? I can tell you what you need to do. You need to um, do what Paul admonishes Christians to do in Galatians chapter 6. Correct an erring brother and gentleness and meekness. Be prayerful. Make sure that you're mature in the word of righteousness and ask God for opportunities, gracious opportunities to plant seeds. You can't thump someone over the head with with the word of righteousness. You have to be able to explain and prayerfully lift it up to the Lord that He would bless your labors and what you've set forth. He goes on here to demonstrate the unskillfulness. Strong meat belongs to them that are full of age, even those who by reason of use, they have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. I've ran out of time, but the only thing that we need to glean out of verse 14 is what we gleaned out of 2 Peter 3.18. The word, modern translations carry the word over also as the authorized version. The word senses there, that is in the Greek, the meaning of the faculty of your mind, the faculty of exercising, understanding, and judging. We do not, as the Christian church, check off our mental capacities, uh, our faculty of judging, understanding difficult things, for the sake of feelings. Strong meat belongs to them that are mature and those who by reason of the use of what? Their minds, their intellect. They exercise it and are able to discern good and evil. For our conclusion thought, there was two problems that were facing this church in this first century community. 
They had a laziness in their ears and they had a laziness of taking what they heard and putting it into practice. They were unable, therefore, to profit from the meat that he had prepared to give them and would have even emboldened them and made them more sharper and equipped for the glory of God to do in Matthew 28 what they were to do, and that is to spread the gospel. What about us? What about us? I want to read something that I found helpful that has put it perfectly in perspective. This comes from uh, Dr. Robert Martin. Listen to what he said. If God suddenly caused your physical maturity to match your spiritual maturity, what would be left sitting in your pew? Would it be a mature adult able to eat solid food or a helpless infant able only to handle milk? If God, he goes on to say, were to make your eyes reflect the state of your spiritual ears, would they be bright? Would they be alert and attentive? Or would they be almost closed in a deadly spiritual sleep? If God made our bodies reflect our diligence in spiritual exercise, would we be found strong, a vigorous folk, or would we be fat or like jello? Interesting. May God have mercy on us to be honest with our own souls. In the day when this passage was written, the great issue was that obedience to Christ was unto eternal salvation. And this still, for this first century Jewish community, was their, pre- their pressing issue. Obedience to Him, we saw last week, was an adherence to the truth of His gospel. It is by His perfect obedience that we are made what? Pure and white and acceptable by God. Obedience by faith to that gospel, that word of righteousness, was their pressing issue. They were being tempted to go back to the old covenant economy. What is it today that's tempting you to go back from solely trusting in Christ and adding something to Christ? That's the very doctrine that's on the table in this message. May God help us, oh brothers and sisters, never ever to think because of spiritual maturity we have arrived and become prideful May it do what it did when it first came to our understanding and our senses and exercised us, cause us to be humble and willing and able to communicate it to other people. Amen. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we bless you and we thank you. We thank you that it is by your grace, O God, that you have first called us and love us and keep us and Father, we pray that as we reflect on today's message, that you would use it, Lord, to spur us on in the faith, in the, the call of the Christian. Father, we admit to you that at times we are tired, weak, uh, Lord, and we feel as though we may want to give up. But Father, we know, we trust that all power is given unto Christ, who has promised to be with us unto the very end. Father, we pray that as we enter into the passage of chapter 6 next week, that we would be faithful and rightly handling it. Lord, it, it contains so many things that either, either can uh, truly just make a shipwreck of, of one's faith or, or help one to maturely assess where they stand with you. 
It was, as we opened up in our opening thoughts, very true of the first century church, and it is today. There are many, O God, apostates that are visibly in the church. And we pray, Lord, that your grace, that your sovereign call of electing love would, Lord, make it certain to their hearts that they have only one hope, and that is Christ and Christ alone. May his grace, may his love, may his mercy be exalted within our hearts and minds today and forevermore. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.